Hear the reading of the Lord from Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed to the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Hear the reading of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever looked at pictures of the development of a human being in the womb, Uh, but if you have, I would simply say from my perspective, uh, the growth of a human being is stunning to watch. It's absolutely stunning. At five weeks the circulatory system starts to form and the heart begins beating. Five weeks. At six weeks, the nose, mouth, and ears begin to take shape along with the intestines and brain. By seven weeks, hands and feet start emerging from little arms and legs. At eight weeks, the nervous system is expanding and and breathing tubes begin to form from the throat to the developing lungs. By 10 weeks, uh, fine details like nails on their hands and feet start to form and soon the baby is able to kick and stretch and hiccup. I was oblivious to and quite frankly didn't care much at all about all of that until I became a father. Um, And my wife gave to me a present on my birthday in 2009. And I opened it, and then it was one of those little willow tree figurines, some of you know what I'm talking about, that was a dad holding a little baby. And she said, happy birthday. What? All right, I got to understand this whole baby thing now. And and I'll never forget watching my wife give birth to our first son and then our next two boys after nine months of pregnancy. Uh, I didn't know whether to laugh, to cry, or or to bow my head in worship of the creator who I knew had designed the DNA that brought that entire process to fruition. Those microscopic strands of genetic code are incredibly powerful. And from the moment of conception, they're they're responsible for, for all the subsequent growth and development of a child, both in the womb and once they're born. There's a power at work in them a power created by God that, that brings their physical maturity to pass. Friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know at the beginning of 2019 that the exact same thing is true of you in a spiritual sense. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the fact that if you're a Christian, there is a power at work in you. 
a dynamic force created by God and applied by his spirit that is bringing your spiritual maturity to pass. And not just at work in you, right? At work in the entire world, in, in rich and poor and black and white and young and old. It accomplished God's purposes in the first century and it's still accomplishing God's purposes in the 21st century. It's simple enough that a child can understand it. And it's glorious enough that the most intelligent theological minds in the world can't completely wrap their minds around it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm talking about. Paul and his apostolic delegate Timothy, if you're not familiar with Colossians, they wrote this letter to the church in Colossae because the Colossians were vulnerable to false teaching. So you had deceitful men out for their own glory who who were threatening to lead the young congregation away from an exclusive devotion to Jesus Christ. And in light of that danger, Paul and Timothy wrote a book, a letter that, that holds forth the supremacy and glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, there are few New Testament letters that do that more clearly than Colossians. And they remind the Colossians that you won't enjoy a growing relationship with God through ecstatic experiences or ascetic rituals. They will enjoy a growing relationship with God by not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The word of truth and grace that can be heard and understood and, and explained. And in, and in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, they establish the centrality of the gospel. And they exhort the church to not shift from the hope of the gospel by doing something. They slow down and take time to help the Colossians understand the power of the gospel. And so I told you there's something I wanted to do with you at the beginning of 2019. And that's this, to help us understand, to listen in as Paul and Timothy, God speaking through them, help us understand the power of the gospel. Because we're going to need that this year. And you're going to need that this year. And if you're going into this year with with your eye on something other than the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are going to be in trouble this year. I don't want you to be in trouble. So let's look at these lessons about the power of the gospel. Lesson number one, all spiritual fruit in our lives is a result of the gospel. All spiritual fruit. I was tempted to say everything good, but that's, I wouldn't say that because by the common grace of God, there is much good even in those who have yet to hear and respond to the gospel. Amen? That's important. But if you're a follower of Christ, all spiritual fruit in your life, in our lives, is a result of the gospel. Now, it's not uncommon if you're familiar with the New Testament to know that Paul has this way of starting out all his letters with words of thanksgiving in most cases. And the saints and faithful brothers at Colossae were no exception. So look at verse 3. What do Paul and Timothy do? We always thank God when we pray for you. And then in verse 4, 
They give the reason for their gratitude. What do they say? Since, so they're giving thanks, then they remind the Colossians of the reason. Since we have heard two things, of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Okay, now lest that just be reduced to Christianese in your mind, what, what is faith in Christ Jesus? Faith in Christ Jesus is a posture of total reliance, dependence on Christ. To have faith in Christ is to wholly rely on Christ and the work he has done through his life, his death, his resurrection, to make a way for our sins to be forgiven and us to be made right with God. It's more than a belief that God exists or that God is an important person in your life, okay? It's a ruling devotion of the heart that exchanges a supreme love for the pleasures and possessions of this world and relocates that love in a supreme affection for God. That's what faith in Christ is. We trust and are devoted to the God, the Savior, who loved us and gave his life for us. And when you make that decision, when when God works that miracle in your life, because make no mistake, that is a miracle, a profound change takes place. Not, Not just in your relationship with God, but also in your relationship with his people, with other Christians. In other words, our our new love for God expresses itself inevitably in a new love for what God loves. Who does God love? He loves all who have been, likewise, united to Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the Christian life is all about what? It's faith working through love. There's no such thing as a genuine love absent genuine faith. Or a genuine faith absent genuine love. You, You cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with his people. What's the Christian life? It's it's faith working through love. Now look at verse five, because here we learn something of critical importance about the source of genuine faith and love. Follow his logic. Paul and Timothy want the Colossians to remember faith and love don't come out of a vacuum. They don't just appear. They're, They're caused by something. They're a result of something. Namely, look at verse five, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Do you see that? Faith and love don't just, wow, there they are. They're the result of something else. What's that something else that produces faith and love? It's the hope laid up for you in heaven. So think of it this way. If, if faith and love are the fruit, hope is the root. But as soon as people start talking about faith and hope and love, I I think it's really easy to just toss the whole lot into the religious jargon basket and move on. Don't do that. Because the kind of hope that Paul and Timothy are talking about here is not the kind of hope that you can can browse through on the Hallmark aisle. It's better than that. It's, It's categorically different than that. It's immeasurably more real than that. So look back at verse 5. It's so important. They define it. What is this hope laid up for you in heaven? Of this, the hope laid up for you in heaven, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Hope isn't a fill in the blank. Paul and Timothy fill it 
for us. And the substance of their hope isn't an, an amorphous belief that everything will turn out okay when we all get to the big camp meeting in the sky. That's nonsense. It's not biblical hope. The Colossians' longing, the Colossians' confidence, their, their great expectation is fixed on something God has promised to give them in the future. It's secured and it's, it's guaranteed by the word of truth, the gospel. Now, while we're on the defining terms that get thrown into the religious jargon basket train, let's do that here. Because I would argue few words that you hear in church or that you see in the family Christian bookstore are more misunderstood or abused than gospel. So, what is the gospel, Kingsway? Okay, best definition I could give you. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And all that he has accomplished through his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, to accomplish salvation for mankind. Okay? By the way, those of you who are thinking about coming to the new members class, you go through that class, you have a pastoral interview where we talk about, it's God adding you to this church, heads up, I will ask you to define the gospel. Write that down. (laughs) because I only give you about 60 seconds, okay? And I'm amazed at how many, well, the gospel, it's it's the word of God. The gospel is um, the kingdom of God, the gospel. No, it's not. (laughs) The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection to accomplish salvation for mankind. Different ways of saying that, but you've got to say that in some way. And to remember that that's the gospel is to be reminded that God created us. And because he created us, we're accountable to him. But that's a problem, right? Because we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law, but praise God, he hasn't abandoned us in sin and death. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for our sins to be forgiven, our relationship with God to be restored. And he did that, Jesus did that, by living the life we're supposed to live by dying the death that we are supposed to die and rising from the grave to prove that his life and death were sufficient to obtain our salvation, to make us righteous, and to grant us the gift of eternal life with God. That's the gospel, okay? And that's good news for all who are willing to respond to it, please hear this, by walking a path of repentance and faith. Okay, turning away from sin and turning toward living for God. Then and only then does the hope of eternal life with God, verse 5, become yours. It's not an automatic download. You must repent and believe. And where that kind of gospel-centered hope is present in a man or a woman, something else shows up. What is it? I told you earlier, it's faith and love. Faith and love, that's the whole point of verses four and five. Faith and love don't just appear, they're the result of the gospel. In other words, all all that is good, all that is worthy of praise, but both in our relationship with God, faith, and our relationship with one another, love, is the fruit, the outworking, the results, the end goal of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a connection. So let me give you some practical examples, okay? 
Last year, I watched men and women in this church whom I dearly love live with joy in the midst of significant suffering. How do you think that happened? <laughs> well, they're just special and, and they got a unique download God, Jesus, Bible package that I didn't. Nonsense, okay? It's the result of the gospel. How so? Because the gospel assures those men and women that these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that outshines them all. Men and women who radiate joy in the midst of sorrow are men and women whose lives have been transformed by the hope of the gospel. That's how it works. Okay, example two. Last year, I watched men and women in this church love spouses friends and children who are not easy to love. Okay? Watch you do that. How do you think that happened? Well, it's the result of the gospel, right? When the God who has every right to condemn you instead chooses to lavish mercy and grace and kindness on you and you experience that firsthand, you know what you suddenly discover? You suddenly discover a source, an unending source of power to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. You're simply passing on to them what you first received from God. It's the gospel that produces that, okay? Genuine faith and love. Every expression of of good spiritual fruit in your life, Christian, is a result of the gospel. It's not something you produce in yourself. It's something God produces in you as the Spirit helps you to make connections between what Jesus has done in his life, death, resurrection, and all the various areas of your life. Okay? So when we talk at Kingsway about being a gospel-centered church, what we are not talking about is mindlessly rehearsing, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave. Repeat, Jesus lived, Jesus died. Okay, all right, I get it. (laughs) No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not a mindless recitation of historical facts that the gospel is a historical fact. We're talking about learning how to work out the implications of the gospel, the entailments of the gospel, the way who Jesus is and what he's done applies and radically transforms all the other areas of our life. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. Marriage, parenting, friendship, sexuality. Jesus has something to say about all of those things. So, if you want to grow in some species of faith or love this year, Christian. Don't try harder. Hear that. Fight for godliness. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But fight to understand the connection between that area of your relationship with God where you feel stuck or that area of your relationship with other people where you feel stuck and the connection between that and the eternal blessings that are yours because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You just try harder. You're going to get nowhere this year. You cry out for the, to the Spirit for help to make those connections. You're going to get somewhere this year. 
do that. And if you need help getting started and you still feel stuck in the religious jargon basket and I didn't get you out of it thus far, well, go to the bookshop today and pick up Jerry Bridges' book, The Gospel-Centered Life, and read it. All of Paul and Timothy's thanksgiving is, is connected to the works and effects of the gospel in the Colossians because they know that every good spiritual fruit, all that is commendable and praiseworthy, never will be in our lives, is a result of the gospel. That's lesson one, okay? Lesson two. The gospel of truth is powerfully at work within us and around us. Powerfully at work within us and around us, okay? So, if verses three to five A establish the connection between the gospel and spiritual fruit in our lives... Verses 5b to 6 fill out the character and content of the message itself. And the first thing that Paul and Timothy assert about the gospel, look at the end of verse 5. What do they say? They say that it's the word of truth. The gospel is the word of truth. That's not controversial at all. what's the prevailing belief in our culture today? That there is no such thing as truth, right? There is simply what is true for me or true for you and whoever screams the loudest or seizes the moral victim high ground first wins. Truth claims are power projections. That's all. And since language itself is a product of a particular cultural context, even language, speech, words can never be a reliable vehicle for truth, even if it did exist. That's the prevailing belief. And without dissecting all of the problems with that, I'll simply say, friends, the biblical worldview rejects both of those presuppositions. Why? Because first, the Bible says there is such a thing as truth. There is. And and even, even your own conscience, if you're honest, will acknowledge that's good and right. We we want that. And second, the Bible says that we can know what is true. It's not just that it's, it's out there somewhere, but who has a clue? No, we can know what's true because it is communicated through God's gift of human language. The Bible says both of those things. What's that mean? Well, it means that if you want to distinguish what is right and true from what is false and wrong in 2019... Anybody want to do that? Okay. Then you have to answer a simple question. Simple question. Is what I believe or am doing right now consistent with the gospel? Does it line up with the gospel or not? Okay. Now, some of you may be thinking, hold on, Matthew. Are you saying that when I'm trying to decide whether to date a particular girl, the decision that is good and right has something to do with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> okay? The gospel tells us, 1 Corinthians 6, that what? That our bodies are not our own. 
that we've been bought with a price, that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And that's a massive reality with serious relational implications. It means that, that though it might feel right to date a girl who isn't following Jesus, or wants you to do things with your body that you would never do in front of Jesus, you can know it's not right. Why not? Because it doesn't line up. It doesn't remain, it's not consistent with the truth of the gospel. Specifically the fact that God has a claim on our physical bodies and what we do with them. Because he bought your body with his blood. Just one example. So when we say that the gospel is the word of truth, we're being reminded that truth doesn't come from within us. It comes from outside of us. And and internal impressions and desires don't tell us what is true. The external reality of the gospel tells us what is true. And we desperately need to believe that. And remember that in a broken world that's, that's filled with all manner of competing truths. So know this as you go into 2019, okay? If something is in keeping with the truth of the gospel, it's true. If something is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel, it's a lie. The gospel is the word of truth. Se- second point under this heading, the gospel is universally powerful. Okay, th- this may be the most important point some of you will hear this morning. So, so listen carefully. The gospel is a message. It's a word capable of being transmitted. That's the only reason I'm up here, by the way, talking to you. But the gospel isn't like our words. Praise God for that. Right? It, it, it's not like all of our texts or tweets or, or posts that, that fade into the forgotten mass of, of history or disappear into a dusty data center, okay? The word of the gospel exercises supernatural power. So much so that Paul describes it in intensely personal terms. Look at verse six. The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood it. Now, I'm willing to bet if you're a Christian, there there are a lot of things you're eager to see God do in your life and the life of those you love this year, okay? Some of you hope your husband or friend will come to know the Lord. Maybe you hope God will will help you trust him when the the money is tight or that your children will choose to trust God when the peer pressure is on. You, You hope our nation will be healed from the evils of racism. You hope that more children will be adopted from foster care. You hope that that people groups around the world who've never heard of Jesus will be filled with churches that are proclaiming Jesus. Or you hope that our own local church will be will be built up and strengthened. I'm there, right? I want that. When the face of those desires and a thousand more like them, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to think of God's kingdom, every expression of God's redemptive rule, as something we build. Something that that we must bring to pass through our, our persuasiveness, our service, or our sacrifice. And if we can just work hard enough, we can become the hero of God's story. Not. No. That's a lie. 
That's a lie. You won't find a single verse in the Bible that tells you to build the kingdom of God. You find it, tell me. It's not there. Why not? Because God is jealous for his glory. What does he command us to do? To proclaim the kingdom, to herald the kingdom, to announce the kingdom, to live in light of the kingdom in a way that draws attention to the kingdom, but only God builds his kingdom. I don't get to wear the church builder t-shirt. You know who wears that? Jesus. I will build my church. That's the only reason I'm not freaking out as I look at another year of the joyful, terrifying privilege of being your shepherd. It's all I've got. It's all we've got. God is the one who builds his kingdom. God is the one who expands his redemptive rule. And he's doing it through the word of truth, through the gospel. And the degree to which that strikes some of us, perhaps, as strange, God's building his kingdom through the word, through a message? That's weird. No, it's not. And if you think it's weird, it's because you've probably reduced the gospel to a set of historical facts or religious beliefs. And you've completely forgot Romans 1.16, which says what? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he, he exercises, he, he wields, he displays and deploys his saving power through the word of power. The power of God isn't this abstract or distant thing, okay? It's concrete and near because it comes to us in the form of a message that transforms hearts, that transforms relationships, that transforms churches, and transforms nations if we're willing to let it do that. If you're in Christ right now, in this moment, friend, the power of the gospel applied to your heart and mind through the gift of the Spirit is mightily at work in you right now. So much so that Paul, notice this, he doesn't speak of the Colossians as bearing fruit, verse 6, or the Colossians as growing. What's he say? He speaks of the gospel as bearing fruit and the gospel as growing. The power that enables you and everyone around you who's following Christ to bear fruit and grow doesn't come from you. It comes from the gospel. The gospel isn't just something you believe to get a ticket to heaven. Okay, it's, it's a dynamic spiritual power that continues to bring fruitfulness and growth to pass in our lives until the day it gets us home. And the very universality of that transforming power testifies to its truthfulness. So in Namibia, the gospel is what? Bearing fruit and growing. Okay, in Thailand, the gospel is what? Bearing fruit and growing. In Bolivia, the gospel is what? Bearing fruit and growing. By the way, that's why we're going to have another international missions weekend at the end of February so we can be confronted with that reality. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. So as you enter another year and you long for God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done, don't hope in yourself or your spouse or your pastor or your president. Hope in the power of the gospel, friend. It's all you got. It's all we need.
The gospel of truth is powerfully at work within us and around us. Point number three. What's the third lesson Paul has for the Colossians? The gospel accomplishes its work. Please hear this. Through faithful servants who help people to understand it. It accomplishes its work through faithful servants who help people understand it. The essence of this point is that God ordains the means no less than the message. So think about it. Okay, this isn't rocket science. Think about it. What do the Colossians have to do in order for the gospel to bear fruit and bring spiritual growth to pass in their midst? Look back at verse 6. They had to hear it and they had to understand it. There is no fruit bearing There is no growth increasing apart from the activity of hearing and understanding. I told you it wasn't rocket science. (laughs) Okay? Only when the gospel is heard and understood does it have that transforming work in a person. And, And the same thing is true today. The gospel will not bear fruit in your life or anybody else's life unless someone listens to it and understands it. So, how did the Colossians come to hear the gospel and understand the gospel? Look at verse 7. What's the answer? It's simple. It happens through faithful servants who explain it to them. Verse 7. They learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Okay, very simply, friend, to be a faithful minister, a faithful servant of Christ, is to help people understand the gospel. Do do you want to be faithful to Christ this year? Do do, do you want all that you are and all that you have to be used by him to glorify his name? Do, Do you want to follow Jesus this year? Well, then there's one thing you need to do. You need to help people understand the gospel. Epaphras was a faithful servant. He was the only reason, humanly speaking, there was a church in Colossae. He was faithful to explain the gospel and help the Colossians understand the gospel. Okay, Epaphras, please hear this, didn't make them bear fruit, right? Epaphras didn't make them grow spiritually. The gospel did those things. So what did he do? He made sure the Colossians heard the gospel and understood the gospel. Now I think take a bit of a risk here, that, that we often shy away from telling people about Jesus because it feels like some kind of sales job where we're trying to convince people to become a follower of Christ. And there is, without question, a necessary element of persuasion in urging someone, as I've been doing this morning even, to repent and believe the gospel. But please hear this. Personal evangelism isn't about making people Christians. That's God's job, not ours. And he does it through the power of the gospel. And if you're in the Reformed community, you love everything I just said and choose in response to never open your mouth and explain a single thing about Jesus Christ because it's all God. Mm, I love the fact you're murmuring right now. Well, it is all about God, but he does his work through what? Through his people. 
through faithful servants. Our job is to explain the gospel, to help people who know Jesus and those who don't understand what he's done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So the gospel can do its work in our heart and life. And and remember, remember this, the gospel is a word of truth, which means explaining the gospel isn't about coming up with our own words. It's about helping people understand God's word. Hear that. He's already made in this book the most beautiful, persuasive, convincing case for Christ you will find anywhere. He's made that because it's the word of truth. We don't have to create the word of truth. God's already said the word of truth. So our job as faithful servants is simply to explain it and help people understand it. Now for for the last 10 years, track with me as I make a point of application here. I've, I've gone away in late fall to plan and pray about what God is doing in this church. I love that time. I need that time. And I I returned two months ago, Kingsway, with a strong conviction that there is a very specific way God wants us to grow this year. And here it is. I think God wants us to invite people who don't know him to read and study this word with us. That's it. I think he wants us compelled by humility, confidence in the gospel, to to be faithful servants who invite people to study and read this word with us so we can explain it, help them understand it. Because I think over the years, we've, by the grace of God, we've done a good job helping Christians to understand the gospel and some of the implications of the gospel. But I think this year, God God wants to take that same practice, that same habit of discipleship and, and direct our attention to all the people around us who do not yet understand this and simply explain it to them. So, so here's my challenge, okay? If you're a covenant member of our church, ask God to give you at least one person this year, someone who doesn't already know him, whom you can invite to study and read God's word with you. That's my challenge to you, okay? And to make that more doable, we've created a whole new section of resources in our bookshop for one-to-one Bible reading. So I'm just gonna quickly go through some of those because I think God really wants to help us here with this, all right? So, quickly... And you can storm the bookshop later. I like David Helm's small book, One-to-One Bible Reading. Okay, it's a great place to start. It's, it's brimming with helpful ideas for how to study scripture with someone who's never read it before. Okay? You can check that out. I really like the Word One-to-One series. So this is a collection of, of guided Bible studies through the Gospel of John designed for a Christian to read with someone who's not a Christian, either one-on-one or in a small group. And I love the fact that this series doesn't make any assumptions, defines all of the terms, and has graphics that don't look like they're from the 80s. 
All right? Christianity Explained. This is a little bit bigger, but I hope you can tell none of these are massive volumes, okay? Because I just know we wouldn't use a massive volume. This walks you step by step through studying key parts of the gospel of Mark with someone who's never picked up a Bible before, but might be willing to read it and study it. I think we're going to be surprised this year. How many people, if we say to them, would you like to study the Bible with me and, and just read it together? We'll say yes, because they're curious. And the last two here quickly, this is called You, Me, and the Bible. This spends a lot of time in a variety of different scriptures, but it, but it guides you and a friend uh, through the most important parts of the gospel. But it's small, it's accessible, you don't have to figure everything out. You can just read through it and talk about the questions they give you with a friend. And then the last thing we've recently added, this is a book by Ray Galea called Nothing in My Hands I Bring. Uh, We have a growing number of folks, especially uh, Hispanics, who are bringing friends or getting to know people who are coming out of a Catholic cultural context. And this resource compares Catholicism to the teaching of Scripture in a very accessible, easy to understand, makes no assumptions that people have ever opened a Bible as they're reading it. And we have this in both English and Spanish. And you can read this with a friend who may be curious about that, okay? So all of those resources, they reflect something. A shared biblical conviction that the gospel accomplishes its saving work through people who are willing to help others understand it. And I think God wants to do that work in a new way in many of us this year. And that's why on the 27th, our next prayer meeting, we're going to focus the entire evening on praying for friends and family members who don't know Jesus. And to prepare us for that night, you'll find these cards in the foyer that simply say, pray for me. I hope to share about Jesus with, and then you have a space to write in a friend or family member's name and then put your name, and we're going to add these to a display you'll see in the four years you leave today, and then use them on the 27th when we pray for these folks. You're going to hear a testimony next Sunday, by the way, from one of our members who put a name of their friend on that card last year, and in recent weeks, they have had an incredible opportunity to tell them about Christ. So there's a connection between praying and gospel conversations. Friends, I'll end with this. Following Epaphras' example isn't optional. It's what faithful servants of Christ do. They explain and help people understand the gospel. That's not my job as a pastor. That's your job as a Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. The gospel isn't just a message. It's the power of God for salvation. So what has Colossians 1 taught us this morning? It's reminded us that every bit of spiritual fruit in our lives is the result of the gospel. So what do we pray? Lord, keep us humble, right? It's taught us that the gospel of truth is powerfully at work within us and around us. So what do we pray? Lord, make us confident. And it's challenged us with the truth that God accomplishes his work, the gospel does its work through faithful servants who help people to understand it. And so we pray, Lord, make us faithful. 
If I were to summarize this entire section in a sentence, I would simply say this. If God is to be glorified through his people, through us, Kingsway, the gospel must be proclaimed by his people. That's the whole point. If you hear nothing else, hear that. If God is to be glorified through his people, I I think you want that, right? I want that. Then what must we do? The gospel must be proclaimed by his people. I believe, my friends, that you want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. So let's pray right now and ask for God's help because it's only a confidence in the power of the gospel that will make us faithful. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the fact that in the word of Christ, you have not given us a dusty statement from a timeline. But you have spoken to us through your word the very power of God for salvation. Lord Jesus, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters this year that the gospel would make us humble and confident and faithful. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us for where we have surveyed the landscape of our heart or somebody else's life and concluded that'll never happen. Lord, that's so arrogant. Would you forgive us for for devaluing, for abandoning, for rejecting what you have said through your word about the abiding, fruit-bearing, increasing and growing worldwide power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, I pray that this year you would overwhelm us with relationship after relationship where we can invite somebody to read your word with us, to study your word with us so that we can help them understand your word and explain your word so your word can do what only your word can do. Oh, Father, would you make us faithful, not compelled by guilt, but filled with glad gratitude and joy because all we have, all that you have done in us, all the fruit you have borne through us, all the ways you have changed us, Father, it's all because of the gospel of grace. Make this church a more gospel-centered church. I pray. We need that. Please help. Amen.